welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jed Emerson to the podcast. Jed is a widely recognized international thought leader on impact investment, performance metrics, and sustainable finance. He was the originator of the term blended value and has spent more than two decades exploring how capital investment strategies may be executed to create multiple returns. He's held appointments at Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford business schools and has written extensively on impact investing, social return on investment, and related areas. His latest book is The Purpose of Capital, Elements of Impact, Financial Flows, and Natural Being. Well, thank you very much, Jed, for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. It's really my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Brilliant. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and career and how you became involved in the world of impact investment? Uh, sure. Uh, I became involved, I guess you'd say, before the, the world of impact uh, investing was really created, or at least in the, the modern sense of the term. My, my background is in community work and youth development. And uh, so I had a spent my teens and my 20s involved in that, had founded a homeless youth program here in San Francisco that did very well and uh, was well regarded. But it also left me uh, feeling kind of hypocritical because I felt like uh, the money in the nonprofit sector and in the public sectors kind of moves on the basis of politics, perception and persuasion as opposed to performance. And in the face of that, I really felt like you know, what mattered was my speaking ability and ability to convince people to give us funds, but it had nothing really to do with the quality of our program and, and what we were actually doing with kids. And it just left me feeling like there had to be a better way to, to think about this. So I, I ended up leaving Larkin Street in 1989 and through a variety of things, connecting with a guy named George Roberts, who's the founding partner of uh, Colbert Kravis Roberts, KKR, uh, the, the private equity group. And uh, he, <clears throat> in, a, in a series of discussions, challenged me to think about and, and promote a strategy around philanthropy that could be based on investing principles and practice, kind of uh, using finance to drive community change. And um, that started an 11-year relationship uh, where I ran a fund for George where we used his private philanthropic capital to finance social entrepreneurs and social enterprises. And it was out of that work that I developed the concept of blended value and uh, framed what I think was the first formalized methodology around social return on investment, which then caught the attention of a number of for-profit mission-driven investors and ended up kind of moving me from philanthropy to more, if you will, market-based finance. And so that took another 10-year kind of journey where I joined with a variety of private equity and public equity groups that were doing uh, variations on ESG integration, uh, sustainable finance, and what we would now call impact investing. And then about 10 years ago, I kind of literally fell into um, a, a series of opportunities to work with family offices, which is what I've done for the last decade, uh, but in particular, families that are interested in uh, what I call total portfolio management. So using all of their net worth to drive impact of various types 
uh, across the capital continuum of philanthropic near market and market rate capital. Uh, and that's kind of what's brought me uh, to this point today. Great, great. What excites you about impact investment? And to what extent do you think it's really a different model of finance? Well, I think it's it's clearly a different model of finance, um, but it's not. I think a lot of people focus on the idea of impact investing as kind of taking things off the table, you know, screening out bad companies and things like that. Whereas I think of it as more additive and kind of opening the investment aperture and and looking at and considering uh, a, a variety of greater aspects of value creation and investing uh, in order to optimize total performance. Uh, by which I mean looking at optimizing financial returns together with social and environmental impacts. Uh, But that financial returns piece really is a function of the asset class and the particular strategy you're looking for, uh, as opposed to some absolute, you know, you have to always make as much money as possible kind of mindset, which I think can be very limiting. To what extent are there investors out there that are willing to, shall we say, uh, not uh, maximize the returns for impact? Well, again, I think it's the we need to turn the question around. When you look at a portfolio, uh, every portfolio has different investments in different asset classes that create uh, different financial returns in exchange for various levels of, of risk. And I think when we talk about impact investing at the portfolio level, that's really what we're talking about is is stepping back from this question of the dualism of, you know, can you do well and do good and how much do you have to give up in order to, to do good to a broader question of, well, what is your fundamental intent? What are you really trying to do as an investor? And then how do you think about the variety of strategies that you have available to you to pursue that goal? And if you frame it that way, it's, it's you're not giving anything up. You're really creating a more effective portfolio to achieve what it is you're trying to do in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very investor-driven uh, perspective. I, I talk to a lot of social entrepreneurs, and of course, it's not surprising. They struggle to, to raise capital. Many investors I talk to recognize that it, it's not always the case that there's more money available in the sense that there's a wider opportunity set because people are saying, well, we are willing to accept lower kinds of returns. Quite a number of the social entrepreneurs I've spoken to, that has not been their experience that wider range of options because they are less market, the, the returns are going to be less market uh, related. Well, I think that's in part because people in the field continue to fall back on this duality, this this idea that somehow you have philanthropic capital on the far left side of the continuum and you, you have full market rate capital on the far right. And there's some kind of a chasm between the two and so, you know, what we have to do with impact investing products is basically paper over that chasm and try to bridge that divide. Um, when, in fact, if you step back and you really understand that all capital has impact, um, the question isn't how much are you willing to give up financially? The question is whether or not you actually have structured your portfolio on terms that really get you what you're seeking as, as returns. Uh, both as an investor and as a human, <laughs> I think these are the these are the issues. And and the the challenge is that a lot of folks still think of this as kind of like, well, you either are impact first or finance first. And I hate that phrase because I think it's really locked in uh, this duality, if you will, 
Um, and it, it really has inhibited uh, the conversation around value and value creation. And what are you actually really trying to do, not only with your capital, but with your life? Well, that tops right into the heart of the discussion. Hopefully we can have today on your new book, The Purpose of Capital, very wide ranging and ambitious in scope. Now, clearly impact investment is a very good example of you know, changing paradigm in investment. But just to step back for a moment, what drove you to write this, to ask these questions? And why does finance matter? Well, I think, well, first off, I think those are two different questions. <laughs> so let me, let me start with why finance matters, and then I'll move to why I did the book. Um, I, I, you know, finance matters because it provides, uh, potentially provides the fuel that entrepreneurs and communities uh, require in order to achieve uh, the goals and possibilities that we have before us. And so connecting, you know, capital to organizations and entrepreneurs is a, is a critical part of the process of entrepreneurs being able to capture the value and the opportunities they see, not only in, quote, the market, but in their community, in their world. And they it then allows the investor to be able to align and leverage and invest in things that are really moving to create the kind of world that, that an investor seeks as well. And traditionally, we've thought of that in terms of high-performing companies that offer competitive financial returns. But again, if we open that aperture just a little bit, uh, we can understand that as different levels of appropriate financial return together with the generation of sustained social and environmental impacts. And that's really the goal that we should have for finance is it's not simply the, you know, the purpose of capital as making more capital. Uh, the purpose of capital is self-replication, if you will, as much as the purpose of capital is a means to an end, as a, as a fuel, in my mind, uh, to drive the individual freedom and self-determination in the context of community. Uh, it's really the fuel that allows us to pursue what we want to be in the world, if you will. And it's a lot more than simply job creation and generating you know, more economic performance, if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. Something I'm sure we will come back to. So, yeah, you've split, the, as you say, two separate questions. C can you talk now a little bit about the motivation for this book? Well, you know, again, I've been active in this community for 25 years, <laughs> something along that line, and uh, have been focused exclusively on working with ultra high net worth families for the last 10 years relative to helping them you know, outline their mission and their goals and then create and execute investment strategies that will attain, you know, what their vision is for themselves and for their capital. And about three years ago, I, I realized that I had just become really frustrated with a lot of the conversations, not only that, that I was having with my families, but also broadly speaking, that the field of impact investing was having as a whole. And I felt like all of the conversations had devolved uh, to questions of strategy and tactics, to, to discussions about, you know, how do you do this? And as we said, you know, to conversations around how much do you have to give up for impact and how do you measure, you know, how do you structure products? How do you create funds? And what I realized is in my conversations with folks, broadly speaking, you know, in the field around the world, what I felt happens is that a lot of people blow by the first question of 
purpose. Like, why are you doing this? What really are you trying to achieve? And then inform your practice by virtue of having clarity on that first question. They go right to this question of how do you do it and seem to think that somehow either they don't have to enunciate clarity around purpose or that somehow they can find purpose through practice itself. Um, and I, I uh, you know, I'm a strong believer in praxis in the in the idea that how you think about things informs how you act in the world and how you act in the world then gives you better ways to think about what you're doing and the intent and the purpose. And so um, I, I, I don't think that it, those are two separate things, but I think that our field has fallen too far into this idea that all we need is some kind of killer impact app. Uh, all we need is that great ETF product, that great big fund that's going to put us all over the top and we'll all be satisfied with impact. I, I think we've really missed the boat. And so what I realized, and, and, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. I mean, this is my eighth book on uh, impact invested in social entrepreneurship and really the first one that's trying to go behind these questions and look more specifically at, you know, why are we doing this? How did we get to this place of dualism that one could think about capital in the absence of understanding the interplay between economic, social, and environmental factors? Um, I mean, these are all issues that I really wanted to explore. So I decided I needed to just kind of stop, um, you know, not give any more keynotes for a while and go back to uh, reflection and reading and trying to understand more about how we even got here. Yes, yes, and a very ambitious and broad range of contributors, ideas, and perspectives. Now, one of the things you talk about is placing investing within historic and philosophical context, and you want you go back in time. How does this perspective change things? Well, I think it changed, changes everything, in a, <laughs> in a sense, because we tend to forget that we have come to this place uh, by virtue of everything that has happened before us and by virtue of debates and issues and ideas that other people have engaged in. And somehow we think that where we are today is this logical, rational kind of, well, of course, this is the way we should think about these things. When in fact, how we think about finance and investing today is largely a product of, of a, a conscious process of exploration and deliberation and reflection, all of which has their roots in uh, social constructs, in you know, how we think about the nature of economics and how we as a community of, of asset owners have come to accept a certain set of practices as being you know, the way that we should think about it as opposed to recognizing that these are all simply social constructs. It's, it's all, it all can be turned and changed and evolved. And, you know, economics has its roots in the social reality of human interaction. And we can redefine, re-examine, uh, and reintroduce ideas around what is the purpose of capital and how economics should function that complements our rational self. I'm not asking that we go into some kind of, I don't know, a squishy, you know, feelings-based perspective on economics, but rather that we place economics in its rightful place and, and not view it as some kind of scientific, you know, natural rule of law, when in fact these are rules and laws that we ourselves have created. And when you, when you get into that mindset, you really understand that 
we as individuals can redefine our understanding of, of the purpose of capital and the role it should play in the world. And we can work to rise up above and transcend the limitations of our current thinking with regard to economics. And not to oversimplify, Jed, have you identified a few places that you think are where crucially we we made the wrong turn, or we've you know where our perspective we've lost the thread? Sure. No, it, I mean it's it's really, and this is why you end up just getting sucked into this incredible like this journey, if you will. Um, well, let me let me first say that where I started was to say, okay, well, so how did we get here? How do how did we come to this place of dualism where we thought that you could really separate the economic from the social and environmental. And, and of course, a lot of us would say, well, that, you know, that really happened in the period of the, the Enlightenment, um, and in particular with Descartes and the whole kind of idea that there's a separation between, you know, mind and body, uh, the spiritual versus material. Um, and, and I think that's where most people who would even think about it would kind of begin and end the conversation. And then they would also say, well, and so therefore, you know, the Enlightenment was great. And, and so this is correct. And this is where we're supposed to be. But actually, it's a much more fundamental and profound conversation, because without going into <laughs> all the various details, if you think about the evolution of humanity and you think about <clears throat> what uh, the historian Herrera calls the cognitive revolution, the time when we first evolved a brain that had the capacity for self-reflection and consciousness. Uh, what we're really talking about is fundamental to the human experience is both that separation, this idea of self and how we begin to think of ourselves as separate from community and tribe and, and nation, um, that that process then really is, is where we have the roots of this. And in many ways, I would argue that human history is the story of our trying to bridge that divide. It's the story of our trying to understand self in the context of community and other uh, o, uh, with a capital O. And that this really is that history of religion, of social history, of politics, of certainly of economics. Um, and so as you trace that back, you really can see that in, our, in the course of human history, this is the fundamental question is how do we understand this, this dualism, this separation of self from other, and most importantly, how do we transcend it in order to become more fully conscious, uh, or as we would say today, to, to become woke. And I think that's really what's been fascinating for me in, in this set of readings and in this exploration. And what I try to address in the book is that going back to the first question, the reason that we have this idea of trade-offs, that you, that you need to trade off something in order to gain social value in the world is because of this, this dualism, this idea that somehow who I am is separate from my family, from my community, from my nation, uh, from my planet. And that if we rise above that and understand the self as connected with other, you really begin to see that it, that it is all, in fact, one. It's all connected. And the idea that somehow I can be successful uh, is, is fine within traditional economics, that I can make a pile of cash and that's the goal. But if we're really more interested in significance, if we're interested in really this question of meaning and purpose – 
we have to understand that we cannot attain that level of significance in the absence of others achieving it as well, which creates a whole other way to think about the nature and purpose of capital. It's fascinating. As you say, it has its roots uh, going back hundreds of years. Uh, If we had uh, longer, it would be very interesting to trace some of those uh, journeys and and those ideas (laughs) along the way. (laughs) Let me also say, but this is also why what I've done is I basically I've put the book up online with free digital formats and then have also priced the paperback and the hardback uh, at cost of basically waiving royalties and all that other stuff. Um, because I really think this is a critical issue for us to be engaging with as a community. And in the absence of that, we're never going to make progress. I mean, we have gone as far as we can in the traditional mindset. And now what we're seeing is people simply iterating on a theme and creating bigger funds, more metrics, yet more discussions of definition and terms, when in fact, uh, to my mind, we've already addressed all that. <laughs> and what's holding us back is, are not those issues, but these much greater questions of meaning and purpose and, and intent with regard to capital. Now, these are really, uh, you know, deeply philosophical and important questions. I'm going to ask you about something that's less philosophical. What about deregulation of finance? We've seen a financialization of the economy in so many ways over the last 30 years. And, you know, the the questions that you're talking about that are deep and uh, philosophical and the nature of self and other are are really important. To what extent do you see the situation we're in today as a result? What is your analysis of what's been happening over the last 20, 30 years, this, you know, financialization paradigm? And where does that fit in, Jed? Well, I think, you know, it is a, again, the kind of the logical outcome of the way we've been thinking of this. Uh, we, we think of it uh, within a set of assumptions and frameworks relative to finance and economics. And so, therefore, if you uh, embrace a certain school of thought within that broader kind of frame of economics, it leads you down the path of saying, well, um, if, if the only thing that matters is the economic analysis if the only thing that is of value is free markets and free enterprise, then of course, you know, we have to go to this place of, uh, you know, light regulation, uh, you know, minimal expectation of responsibility, uh, all of these other things, because we, we before that have embraced a whole set of assumptions with regard to, you know, how we're going to think about the role and place of economics and finance, whereas and. If, if the individual asset owners had taken a more holistic perspective on economics and finance, maybe that would be okay. Like if they, uh, within a deregulated um, environment, brought a more holistic approach and understanding to their responsibilities and what the nature of performance is and these other questions, maybe that would be okay. But the fact is, in an exclusively economic frame, and with a traditional kind of financial uh, framework that basically defines what is real and true and of value, we're going to go down this path of um, really where we are right now, where basically you see more and more money going to fewer and fewer people, um, less and less consideration of broader value and meaning, uh, more bifurcation uh, of self and this this idea that somehow we can understand economics in the absence of social and environmental elements of, of consideration, you start putting all these things together 
Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem. It takes you where we are today. And in part, this is exactly why I want to engage in this conversation. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, many people today believe there's tremendous momentum for change in finance and investment. And you've been at the heart of uh, a lot of that within the impact investment and in other areas. But as, as you say, in terms of the ESG investment, you've got divestment of fossil fuels, you've got green bonds, you've got you know impact investment, and increasing number of investors now are, are, are taking very seriously climate, climate risk and they're including that in their, their models and so forth. How deep uh, do you think these changes really are? Well, I think they are changes, uh, but they are changes at the level of how we think about finance, not how we think about the purpose of capital. And so by that, I mean what happens in these conversations is we circle around each other and add little bits and have you know new variations on a theme, but we don't really rise up to this other level um, to to move in a spiral as opposed to a circle, if you will. And so we think progress is dividing the circle more finely, <laughs> you know, saying this is what ESG is, this is ESG integration, this is sustainable finance, this is impact investing on a direct basis and on and on, which is good. Like we need to have that clarification. But what I'm arguing is that we need to bo- go both, you know, deeper and higher in our understanding of meaning and purpose of capital to begin with, which then allows us to see the connections and the possibilities within that circle, but not be limited to the circle within that single dimension or frame. What does that mean? What kinds of conversations, what kinds of frameworks, who's involved? Can you talk a little bit about that, Jed? Well, I think there there are a variety of folks. Let, let me also say in the book, I intentionally don't go into uh, an agenda for the future or here's the next steps that, of what we need to do or, you know, here's the top groups that are advancing this these ideas in practice because I think that's part of what's wrong with the conversation. I think we lead with our answers and our solutions as opposed to sitting with a more contemplative posture and simply be with these challenges and issues and themes in order to go to another place fundamentally. And so I I think that uh, we need to be careful about rushing uh, to judgment and to solutions because then what you end up doing is you simply place your solutions against other people's answers and you end up in this back and forth that doesn't really advance the conversation very much. And that's, again, part of what I'm arguing against is that uh, each of us as individuals needs to sit with and, and simply contemplate these questions in a more you know, meaningful, significant way, get out of the answers, get out of the posture that says this is how we need to be doing this, and, and go, again, kind of deeper and higher in consideration of these factors. And then circle back and say, okay, well, what then are the sets of actors and activities that reflect more about what I'm, I would like to see advanced as opposed to less? Um, so that's my big caveat. <laughs> now, having said that, I think that when we look at a lot of the work that's going on relative to community finance, when we see a lot of the conversations in regenerative and, and if you will, donut economics, when we see the work that... Um, the New Economics Foundation of the UK is advancing, or the Buckminster Fuller Institute and uh, the, the Capital Institute uh, in the US 
uh, there are definitely a whole host of actors, and that's just in the, the U.S. and Europe, but you know, internationally in other nations as well. There's a whole host of actors advancing variations of these solutions and these answers. And I think that before we embrace this new agenda, each of us as individuals needs to take the time uh, to pause and really reflect on some of these more profound questions, or else uh, we will, uh, you know, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, we will have, you know, uh, guided missiles and misguided men. And what we need uh, are basically, you know, leaders, uh, men and women coming together in community, uh, exploring not only how to do things differently, but how to think differently about what we do. And that's why I, I felt it was, and, and quite frankly, for me personally, this is why I had to do this work, uh, was just as a form of kind of personal development, I guess you'd say. And that led to then my wanting to, to share some of that with folks. But I'm not uh, approaching this in the sense that here's the agenda that you need to execute. I'm saying we all just need to stop first <laughs> and think differently about the nature of this work and what we're called to do, especially in the face of climate change and other factors that really put it an end time on some of these discussions. Interesting. What are some of the big insights for you, Jed, and this journey to write this book? You know, this is going to sound a little weird, <laughs> but I think the biggest insight for me as somebody who's viewed as a thought leader and who gives a lot of talks and writes and all this other stuff, I think the biggest insight was for me to just shut up <laughs> uh, and not feel that I need to respond, that I need to put an answer or an agenda on the table that's better than this person's or that organization's agenda, but rather to step back. And I, I think that that's hard for us to do. You, you go online to get answers to everything. You read these blog posts that have like five points to purpose or what have you. Uh, everything is, is done at a very superficial level. And I think the, the, the biggest thing that came out of this for me is this whole idea of uh, the reading life. Um, that in fact, the way that life speaks to us is through memory and history, as, as Richard Powers has said. And that, that if we just pause, we actually know an awful lot more about how to think about these issues than I think any of us really fully appreciates in the context of our current kind of so-called modern conversations. Um, and if we just listen and, and absorb the wisdom and the perspective and the insights of uh, really, you know, five to 10,000 years of human experience exploring some of these questions and challenges, it gives you a, a deeper, um, almost, and, and again, this sounds a little weird, but almost more peaceful approach to managing in the context of these turbulent times. Um, I, I've been, I, I'm by no means, uh, you know, a deep spiritualist who's figured anything out. I, I know I, some of the, the the ideas and concepts that I draw on are, are, are Buddhist, some are Christian, uh, some are, if you will, humanist. Um, so I'm not sitting here in any way <laughs> saying that I figured this out. But I got to say, I've been really struck by the peace that has come to me simply by virtue of not feeling like I have to lead with a solution, but rather can sit and be present with conversations around these more fundamental questions. And when you approach it on that basis and you realize that 
that every generation has grappled with these these questions and every wisdom tradition has better ways to think about this and even uh, physics and the way that you know scientists are currently framing these questions of connection uh, all of this is part of the human journey uh, to find a way to be present uh, in the context and in the face of the challenges that we have before us today and I just have found that really liberating on, on a personal level for me. Fascinating. Fascinating. Over the coming years, Jed, it looks like we'll need to mobilize trillions of dollars to transition to a low carbon economy and deal with the various SDGs. Um, so we're going to need capital in, in all kinds of ways to, to build this better world. Is capital, as we currently conceive of it and the way it operates today is it fit for this and and have you any thoughts on uh, on this well i think that the key part to your question is as we currently think of it <laughs> and i and i guess what i would say is what, what i find frustrating about some of the conversations within the impact investing community is that they really are using as their framework and the touchstone for how we should think about this uh, tr very traditional, um, very regular uh, kind of notions of economics and how we should, quote, think about the place and purpose of capital. Whereas if we step back and reframe that conversation, we will be able to really unleash capital for its greatest purpose uh, and understand it in a whole nother way. And I think that's the potential that we have. The challenge is that as, as new actors come into the space, as people who haven't been a part of the conversation, especially as people who are expert at finance and traditional ways of managing capital come into this discussion, they come into it with a level of, of hubris and, and almost arrogance with regard to, quote, what this is, uh, that really will set us back significantly. And I think that uh, one of the key takeaways from you know, the, the readings that I've been doing and the discussions I've been engaged in has been this idea that we, we really have to start from a place of humility. Uh, in the book, I talk about different forms of impact. And the first thing I talk about is ignorant impact. And this idea that somehow, you know, what's good for the uh, for GM is good for the U.S. kind of, you know, I pay taxes, I create jobs and that's positive impact and that's enough. Um, and I think when I hear some of the today's conversations around impact investing, that's kind of what I hear. I hear people saying, well, we don't really have to talk about impact because it's baked into our business model. Um, we have these metrics that document impact. So, of course, we're having impact. And it's very much a perspective from the asset owner. It's from a very traditional mindset that my capital is mine and whatever I care to do with it is all that matters. When at its core, impact is really a relationship. It's, it's you were talking about the place and presence of your wealth and your capital in, a, in the context of creating change in the world. And by definition, you're talking about how that capital affects others, how it affects community, how it affects climate. And for us to continue this mindset around the only thing that matters is my ability as a fund manager to provide you with competitive, quote, market rate returns, which we all know is a lie anyway, 
um, is simply the wrong way to think about what this is, because the measure of value and performance is not the traditional way that we thought about it. That's what we're saying, is we need to have a different way to approach the role and place of financial capitalism. And the practices that brought us to this place where that's required are certainly not going to be the same practices that take us where we need to go. And from what I, I gather from what you're saying, it's not just a, a question of the amount of impact investment over the last year. What you're talking about is a much profounder, much deeper, and maybe will take longer uh, to take place, but starts off with this questioning and asking questions and thinking rather than um, rushing ahead and you know trying to, trying to uh, increase particular uh, kinds of funds that are out there working under an existing paradigm. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. That basically, impact investing and ultimately finance needs to be about systems change. It needs to be about shifting the relationship between self and other. It needs to be about changing how we view our place and presence as it relates to planet. And these are all things that, that you don't do simply. You don't do it easily. It doesn't devolve to some common algorithm or a single definition. And until we recognize that, we are always going to be falling short of our possibilities and potential. And the evolution of impact investing will be toward simply one more style of investing in finance, as opposed to something that is truly transformative and liberating, uh, not only for asset owners, but more importantly, for communities and for the planet. Are you optimistic, Jed? And can we talk about these kinds of questions without recognizing power, politics, concentration of wealth, the way the wealth, the finance has taken uh, hold in many democratic uh, situations and has uh, a, a, a whip hand. Well, again, I, you know, I started my career working with homeless youth and teenage prostitutes. So I'm, I'm fundamentally an optimistic person who, who knows and has seen the potential for all of us to change and evolve and live more fully. Um, that said, I'm also just very aware that this conversation, uh, these issues, the challenges we're confronting is simply the latest wave in a whole series of waves that are coming off the ocean and that we need to understand our work in the context of the work of others. We need to understand this time in the context of the historical flow of human experience and the, the quest for understanding and purpose that basically capital uh, is a tool for us to advance toward. And when you keep those things in mind, you, you realize that being pessimistic or optimistic is not really the question as much as, uh, am I present in this process? Am I fully here and engaged? And what are the various ways that I can bring my whole self uh, into this dialogue and discussion and this exploration with others in order to really find that solution uh, that's out there, that already exists. It's simply our own blinders that prevent us from seeing. Well, thank you very much, Jed. It's a fascinating discussion and a, a fascinating book, well worth reading, which I recommend everyone to read. And um, thank you again for your time today. Well, I really appreciate your reaching out. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you as well. Good luck with it all. Already, Take care. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. 
please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.